Hello, my name is Chris Larvey and I'm a spine surgeon here in Oxford and I have a, a big interest in surgery in Africa and I've been involved in um, setting up hospitals in, in, in several countries as well as a lot of teaching organisations. Um, I've been asked to say, give, give a memorable case where I regret what I did and uh, there are, there are several, but the one that I'd like to mention is uh, a case of Burkitt's tumour in uh, a boy of about 10 who I saw as an emergency because he was anemic and, and feverish and he had a large swelling on his face. And I was extremely worried that this was an abscess and very worried that, uh, that, 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 that there might be spread of the infection to his brain. And so I did an emergency I thought it was an abscess, and I and I opened it, and uh, I opened it quite widely, searching for that pus, which obviously we didn't find. The good news is that uh, the, the pediatrician who saw the case the next day said, "No, this is Burkitt's, and we're going to get him onto the right treatment." And the boy did well, but he's got a scar on his face to remind him of my uh, foolish action. Thank you. So thank you so much for that case, Chris Lowey. We really appreciate you taking the time to share a case with us, especially because it gives us um, a chance to build on the work that you've already started with global surgery. There are a few key learning points that of course is gonna take us through right now. I think the, for me, the main takeaways from this case or the main things I learned from this case was that obviously as excellent and experienced as you are, medicine, can still humble you in many ways. And I think this was an example of that. So it's always important to approach each patient, particularly in the context they were in. And that brings us to the second point about the context in which this patient was in. In a different scenario, maybe nine times out of 10, this would have been an abscess. But likely this patient was in an endemic area in Africa known for Burkitt's lymphoma. And more often than not, this massive mass on the face is more likely burkers than anything else. So I think in, it's always important to take the patient's context into consideration when thinking or formulating a differential diagnosis for your patients. Just on that point, of course, I don't know, I don't think I've come across burkers, but I have come across a few cases of, of abscesses. And I don't know how Chris got that fluctuance or, or he managed to confuse the fluctuance of that with anything else. So I don't know, maybe we need to also relook at Chris's education. Just joking, but yeah, mistakes do happen and we all need to be cognizant that we are not always right. So like we said, we're speaking about Burkitt's today. Essentially, Burkitt's is a very, very aggressive form of a lymphoma. It's also marked with, ex with extremely high proliferation of cells as well as the potential for high rate of cell turnover, especially once treatment has been given. And this will lead us to some of the complications that of course we'll build on a bit later. So as for I mentioned, Burkitt's lymphoma is an aggressive B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Just to clarify the difference between Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the difference is based on the presence of a Reed-Sternberg cell which is a pathognomonic cell that you'd see on histology, which would be a large multinucleated or bilonucleated cell with prominent eosinophilic inclusions. So this is present in Hodgkin's lymphoma and it's pathognomonic for one to call it a Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
regardless of whether it's B or T or whatever, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas has an absence of these cells. Therefore, in Burkitt's, there's an absence of these Reed-Sternberg cells. Now, just to move on to the pathophysiology of Burkitt's lymphoma, it's not completely well understood the interplay, but there are various strong associations, and I'll go into that. Primarily, Burkitt's lymphoma is very strongly associated with a gene mutation on a chromosome 8, particularly the C-mice oncogene. So there's dysregulation and mutation of this gene leading to more rapid cell proliferation. Um, a very common translocation of this gene is between chromosome 8 and 14. But other common translocations include chromosome 2 and 8, as well as 8 and 22. There's also a very strong association with Epstein-Barr virus infection. And in endemic cases, which Farai will delve into a bit more, there's almost 100% positive infection rate with Epstein-Barr virus. There's a speculation that there's an interplay between the virus as well as the gene translocation and gene regulation of oncogenes and proto-oncogenes. And this, coupled with also malarial infections, has also been a strong association. And malarial infections tend to inhibit specific immunity to Epstein-Barr virus itself. So you'll find that endemic Burkitt's lymphoma is very common in areas which are endemic for malaria as well as Epstein-Barr virus. So I'm now going to speak about the different types of Burkitt's lymphoma that you can get. And essentially, there are three different types, endemic, sporadic, and immunodeficient. They all share the same histology as well as display similar clinical behavior. So starting with endemic Burkitt's lymphoma, this is typically found in equatorial regions of Africa, and it is found normally in a young population. Um, roughly the ages of four to seven. It's also more common in males than females. This, with this Burkitt, you're typically going to find the mass or lymph nodes on, on the face and typically in the maxilla more than in the mandible, as well as in, in the central nervous system. In your sporadic Burkitt, and this is typically in an age group of 30 years of age, out of all the Burkitt, this is the one that's most likely going to be found in Western Europe or North America. And typically, the areas affected are your bone marrow or external regions, such as the abdomen. Lastly, we have your immunodeficient Burkitt's. And this is typically in patients with HIV or organ transplants. Interestingly enough, though, in HIV patients that have, that have this form of Burkitt's, the CD4 is typically more than 200. And this immunodeficient form of Burkitt's normally affects the lymph nodes. So the approach that you can use for Burkitt's, for Burkitt, we're going to use the approach for lymph nodes, lymphadenopathy. And just to keep it a bit, I don't know, a bit interesting, a cool way of remembering, we're going to say, we're going to use the acronym Miami. So whenever you think of lymph nodes, think about Miami and how all the money that you're going to be making in your medical career. Not really. So the M stands for malignancies. I stands for infections. A stands for autoimmune. M is for miscellaneous and I is for iatrogenic. So if there are malignancies, different things that can give you lymph nodes, your carposis, sarcoma, leukemia, lymphomas, skin neoplasms, meds. Infections, you always want to divide your infections to your bacterial causes, such as your um, Bartonella brucelliosis. TB is always a big one. Viral, such as CMV, HIV, infectious mononucleosis, HSV, 
then your granulomatosis, such as your cryptococcosis or histoplasmosis. Autoimmune conditions include rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren syndrome, SLE. Miscellaneous, you have to always include things like such as Kawasaki and sarcoidosis. And then iatrogenic causes of lymph nodes include serum sickness, or even some medications, although I wouldn't say this first in your exams, such as your allopurinol or atenolol. And then quickly, 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 your differential diagnosis for a case of Burgess lymphoma, like the one presented. So you're going to want to include things such as a sarcoma, your melanoma, and more, more importantly, is your follicular lymphomas, diffuse blood cell lymphomas, or acute lymphoblastic leukemias, just to name a few, and salivary gland tumors. Now, just to discuss the diagnosis of Burkitt's lymphoma, as well as the clinical presentation. Diagnosis is essentially based on tissue diagnosis. So one would obviously biopsy the affected site. That will obviously depend on the presentation of the patient and what is the most easily accessible site to actually take, take a biopsy and send for testing. One would obviously send for histology, which would show a typical starry night of appearance which is not pathognomonic for Burkitt's lymphoma, but highly suggestive. One would also send the samples for immunophenotyping as well as cytogenetic testing. Then obviously one would determine based on that, there would be a high specific features of Burkitt's lymphoma that are indicative that it's Burkitt's and not another type of B-cell lymphoma or another type of lymphoma. With regards to the presence of the C-mice on oncogene translocation or dysregulation, the WHO states that the presence of that is not needed to make the diagnosis of Burkitt's lymphoma if all the other criteria are present. So if clinically, morphologically, immunophenotyping, everything else leads to Burkitt's, then it's Burkitt's. And you don't need the specific genetic abnormality of the C-mice oncogene to make that diagnosis. Coupled with that, the pre presentation of the patient depends on the site. So as for I mentioned about the various types, if it's the en endemic cases where they typically present with the facial or jawbone masses, obviously you have this rapidly progressive uh, mass that's on one's face, coupled with other systemic symptoms such as fever, fatigue, loss of weight, night sweats, which in our case would be indicative possibly of TB. One would think of that yeah. South Africa. And if it's a sporadic case, if they present with an abdominal mass, the presentation is, has a wide range from abdominal pain, ascites, increasing abdominal mass, biliary obstruction, bowel obstruction. So it depends on what the where the mass is and the, the kind of the structures associated with the mass. With regards to your um, immunodeficient, which typically has lymph nodal involvement or bone marrow involvement, one would have features of generalized lymphadenopathy or lymphadenopathy in various sites, as well as bone marrow suppression if um, it proliferates to that stage. And in that case, you'd have symptoms of bone marrow suppression or features such as your anemia, thrombocytopenia, and the features thereof. So one would look out for that. And in terms of the workup, that would obviously be very important. Full blood counts, chemistry, blood chemistry. So urea and your electrolytes are also important. As for I mentioned, there's a high cell turnover. So obviously there's a risk of tumor lysis syndrome. So one would want to watch out for that. 
for before and after treatment. One would also obviously do imaging because one would want to get to the extent of the disease because maybe one person would actually just present with lymph nodes, but inside, internally, there are a lot more extent of the disease. So imaging such as CT and MRI would be very important um, to evaluate the extent of disease. So that's in terms of the diagnosis and clinical presentation that one would uh, expect to find in a patient with Burkitt's. I just wanted to interrupt you there, sorry. Just with the one thing that we missed out and that the listeners should not forget is that with the lymphadenopathy, that it's specifically a painless lymphadenopathy and not a painful lymphadenopathy. I don't know, I just find that very important to remember, especially in your you thinking of your differential diagnosis for the lymphadenopathy. Oh, yes. Thanks for that, Farai. Yeah, that's also very important to note. And in terms of treatment for Burkitt's lymphoma, chemotherapy is the mainstay of treatment for Burkitt's lymphoma. Very intensive chemotherapy. And there are various regimens that one can give to a patient, which are usually very effective in achieving remission for the patients. I wouldn't go specifically into the various types because there's so many, and I'm not an oncologist or hematologist, but just know that chemotherapy is the mainstay and the role of surgery or radiotherapy has been greatly reduced. And surgery, unless there's a very surgical clear indication, um, such as a bowel obstruction or biliary obstruction that needs urgent intervention, there's really no role for surgery in the management of Burkitt's lymphoma. Um, with regards to major complications of treatment, as for I earlier alluded to, this um, tumor or neoplasm has a high turnover rate. So there's a lot of cell death and apoptosis. And then with coupled with its response to the chemotherapy, the patients are at very high risk of tumor lysis syndrome. So that's the syndrome of hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, hyperuricemia, hypercalcemia, where the patients are at high risk of the complications of those major electrolyte abnormalities, as well as oliguric renal failure. So to prevent this, patients are usually um, loaded very well with IV fluids, um, just to make sure that they are well hydrated. And one can also use urate oxidase drugs, such as rasburicase, as well as allopurinol to treat the hyperuricemia and prevent renal failure in these patients. And just to move on to prognosis, prognosis has greatly increased with chemotherapy and highly effective chemotherapy regimens for patients. But obviously, prognosis is very strongly related to the clinical stage of the disease. So there are various staging classifications, namely the U.S. National Cancer Institute staging, as well as the Ann Arbor, St. Jude, and Murphy staging systems. Both of, with both of these staging classifications, it's related to the burden of disease and how the extent of involvement or of extranodal sites as well. So the higher the stage, the, the worse the prognosis for the patient and their likelihood to respond to treatment, although treatment responses are generally very good. It's also important to note that children generally respond better to treatment than adults. So lastly, in terms of you taking care of patients that are undergoing chemotherapy for any kind of neoplasm, but in our case, cervicophoma, you also want to make sure that you, the patient doesn't, doesn't end up having an infection post-chemo um, due to the side effects on bone marrow suppression. So make sure that you always transfuse them adequately 
with that as well, they're also at a high risk of becoming fatigued. So make sure that they're getting their fluids, getting their multivitamins. For males, they may want to consider sperm banking because they may there's a very high risk of gonadal dysfunction secondary to the treatment. And with women, especially of childbearing age, you may want to just consider and discuss this thoroughly, discuss the treatment that they're about to undertake very thoroughly. And lastly, again, with um, chemotherapy, there's always a high incidence of nausea and vomiting. So always make sure that you give some antiemetics as well. And also just another thing to add with regards to chemotherapy, there are a few adjuncts to therapy that various oncologists may use, such as corticosteroid use. In cases where there's remission or relapse, someone may consider stent cell transplantation and as well as uh, the use of monoclonal antibodies such as rituximab. That brings us to the end of our episode on Burkitt's lymphoma. We really do hope you've learned a lot. If you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to reach out on our various social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at 15 Minute Medicine. And let us continue to make medicine as simple as possible. Not simpler than that. 